I love seeing and hearing stories like that. It's a reminder that every day in different places all around the world, uh, people who had no idea how much God loved them and what Jesus Christ had done for them are, f- are finding their way back to their home in him. And, and I love that, that Destiny said, she goes, just a year ago, she was like, I was lost. And she goes, but there's a person in my life that I met at work who kept telling me about this Jesus person. I, I, love, I love the story that, that Bria is not like, a, she wasn't a pastor, she's not an ordained clergy person. She's just, she's just a daughter of God living out her identity everywhere she went, including work, and her faithfulness to God opened up a door for somebody else to go from feeling like they were lost, disoriented, and confused to publicly declaring herself as a follower of Jesus. And I believe that there are stories that God wants to, to do like that again. Uh, here in our midst and in our lives, whether we're at home or at school or at work. So let me pray for us and ask God uh, to lead us as we dive into the scriptures together. Father God, I thank you for Destiny and I thank you for Bria and Seth who were so devoted to you and so loving towards her that they were able to kind of serve as a bridge to establish that relationship where Destiny could know who she is and who you are and what, what her life is supposed to be about going forward. God, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come together, uh, come together personally, to be encouraged by one another's presence, to sing things that we believe to be true about you, and, and to hear your word. God, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we'd have a really clear and compelling snapshot, not just of who you are, but who you say that we are, so that we can become fully alive, living out our identity in every way, every day, in every place we go. In your name we pray these things, amen. About 15 years ago, uh, my wife and I had two kids. One of them was about three at the time. And we went to our favorite ice cream shop. Uh, The more you get to know me, you'll learn that all of my stories either have to do about ice cream or Jesus or both in no particular order. And we went to this ice cream shop and as we were walking in, we had to cut through the vestibule and there was this teenage kid, maybe 16 or 17. And he was, you, you could just tell that he wanted to keep the world out there. Like he wanted to keep the world at bay. He had like jet black hair. He had, he had, had a couple piercings going on. He had like the black eyeliner, black shirt, black belt, black shoes, black, like all, all the way through. And you could just tell that he was kind of needing to make a statement that, that you didn't know him. And, and, and you weren't a part of his world. And he was just gonna kinda stand on the fringes and camp out there. That was, that was gonna be a declaration of his values, of his identity. So we kinda gave, we kinda gave him a wide berth. We didn't wanna be in his personal space as we walked in. We got our ice cream and as we were walking out, our three-year-old daughter saw him on her left and she kinda sized him up. She looked at him up and down. And then she looked at me and without flinching at all, she goes, look daddy, a pirate. And this kid, whose whole demeanor had been like very somber and, and pretty moody and kind of gloomy, he, he cracked a smile when a three-year-old called him a pirate. Why? Because that's awesome. And sometimes you never know when somebody is going to see you in a light that is different than the light you're trying to portray yourself in. And when somebody questions your identity, challenges your identity, or reframes your identity, you have to take another look at who you think you are. And that's exactly what we're looking about today when we look at at a counter that Jesus has with his father. And we're gonna find out that Jesus' father loves him so much that he wants to announce and anchor and activate and affirm his identity. And I think that if you've ever had any confusion about who you are or what your life is supposed to be about, I want you to know that God wants to announce and anchor and activate and affirm 
your identity as well. Let's, let's look at the scriptures together. Matthew chapter three says, then Jesus came from Galilee, which is a region in the north of Israel, down to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water and at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Now think about this for a moment. John the Baptist has been baptizing people publicly for months. In fact, he's so popular that people are traveling for miles, maybe even for for as many as days to get to him, to hear his preaching, and then decide to get publicly baptized as a declaration that they wanna turn their lives around. The baptism that John is preaching is called the baptism of repentance. Repentance is just a fancy word for you to be able to say, I realize that I've been living my life at cross purposes with God, and now I'm ready to pivot and live my life in alignment with what he says is true and what he desires of me. So John's message was bold and unflinching. He would use very intense verbiage. He would say like the ax is already at the root of the tree. If you don't repent, you're going to die. So he wasn't pulling any punches at all. And people from all walks of life are saying, I'm ready to turn my life around, I wanna be baptized. So when John shows up for his day of baptism and sees Jesus in the line, he's like, time out. Jesus, I don't know if you understand what this is about. This line is for people who have screwed up their lives and they want to get it turned around. And Jesus said, we're going to do this anyway. It's all going to make sense later. When you look at baptism in the Jewish tradition, you'll see that there are at least three different reasons that people got baptized. One was the reason that John was baptizing people. There was something cracked, there was something broken in their soul, and they were asking God to make it right. So that was the baptism of repentance. Another baptism was a baptism for ritual purity, something that was was maybe wrong with you physically and you needed to be cleansed as a result of an ailment or a trauma that you had so you could be ritually pure before God. But there was a third form of baptism as well. And this is what I call like a coronation baptism or an ordination baptism. See, hundreds of years earlier when the people of God had fled slavery in Egypt and they were wandering around in the desert, God said, we're gonna create a system where you can worship me in a portable tent. And the people that are gonna be in charge of that ministry will be called priests. And there's a very specific way that I want you to identify priests and prepare priests, commission priests for ministry. This is what God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 29. He says, then bring Aaron and his sons, this was the first priestly family, to the entrance to the tent of meeting, that was their version of church, and wash them with water. So bring them to the place where they're gonna serve God and baptize them. Then take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. The priesthood is there by a lasting ordinance. Then you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. That word anoint means to set somebody aside for a special task. Years ago, I had a chance to visit London. And if you go to the Tower of London, you see all of these different crowns and suits of armor and weapons. But they also have a whole display on how coronating a king or a queen has worked in England's history. And you'll see that they actually have an anointing spoon where the priest would anoint a king or queen with special oil and put that oil on their forehead, on their right thumb, and on their right toe, saying everything they think about, everything they touch, everywhere they go needs to be covered by God. 
So when Jesus gets baptized, he's not getting baptized for repentance, he's getting baptized as a coronation. He's getting baptized as an ordination. His baptism declares to John and the world, although Jesus has done nothing wrong, we're gonna put him underneath the water and bring him back up to say that he has a priestly mission. All of his work from this day forward is going to exist to build a bridge between a perfect God and an imperfect people just like the priests did. And in Mark chapter 10, it says, when Jesus came up out of the water, he saw heaven torn open and the spirit came down like a dove. In the same way, in the book of Exodus, when the priests were washed, a cloud descended from heaven. In both instances, there was a visible symbol of the presence of God that came from above to declare that God's blessing was on this person and this moment. Jesus' baptism is a moment where God announces his identity as a beloved son and a pleasing priest. This is a dramatic kickoff for Jesus' career. Everyone who is watching now knows who he is and what he's about. Now it's interesting that when God announces who Jesus is, he doesn't define him by his responsibilities. He doesn't say, this is the Messiah, or this is a teacher, or a healer, or a rabbi. God doesn't define Jesus by any of the things we put on business cards, nameplates, or LinkedIn profiles. What does he say? He goes, this is my son. The only way that God defines Jesus is by Jesus' relationship to him. And at this point in his story, what has Jesus done that is noteworthy? What miracles has Jesus performed? What sermons has he preached? None. There's nothing that Jesus has done that would warrant God's great declaration of favor over him other than God's delight in Jesus just because he's his son. Now those of you who are parents know the miracle of having just this absolutely absurd amount of love for a person that is this big and can do nothing other than basic human functions. And 30 years later, they don't get any prizes for doing those things. But when they're born, you say, I delight in this person because they belong to me and that's it. That's enough, full stop, period. Their behavior hasn't been great and it hasn't been bad, it hasn't been anything. But I delight in them simply because they belong to me. That's what's happening. So Jesus and everybody else who's witnessing this moment is hearing his identity publicly declared. And his identity is what? That he is a son of a God who loves him and is pleased with him. Even though nothing in his performance history has warranted God's love or pleasure. Now to be clear, I'm not Jesus, neither are you. Even so, God delights in us only because we belong to him. Now, it's not enough for us to hear that. The truth of our identity needs to settle in our souls. We need to embrace it in our gut. We need to have it anchored in our core. And that's the very next part of the story. After God announces Jesus' identity, God anchors Jesus' identity through an experience. Listen to the words of Matthew chapter four. It says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Think about that for a second. The same spirit who came down out of the sky and blessed him is the spirit who is leading him into the wilderness to be tested. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, he was hungry. I call this one of the great understatements of scripture. Like I fast on accident for 14 minutes and I'm hungry. 40 days and 40 nights, you're gonna be in bad shape. If you've ever fasted on purpose at all, you know that you're you're physically and emotionally worn down. 
And how many of you know that we are more prone to succumbing to temptation when we're exhausted mentally, spiritually, and physically? And so Jesus, if Jesus has ever been vulnerable, even, even as God himself, it's in, the, in his human form, he's vulnerable now. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to turn to bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, the holy city, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Some scholars believe that this would have been as as tall as nine stories. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. See see what the tempter is doing here? He's like, oh, Jesus, you want to quote scripture? I know scripture too. Let's dance. He goes, he will command his angels concerning you, and they'll lift you up in your hands so you will not strike your foot against a stone. You want to get followers? Do a magic trick. And Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you. He said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. What is the first thing the tempter says to Jesus? He says, if you are the son. What is the tempter's kind of track record throughout human history? The first thing he tries to do with any human being who's starting a relationship with God is try to undercut our understanding of God's faithfulness. He tries to take promises that God has given to us and then undercut those with doubt. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the story, Adam and Eve have been told by God that all they have to do are follow a few basic rules. And all of eternity is open to them. And when the tempter comes to Adam and Eve, what does he say? He goes, did God really say this? It's very crafty. It's trying to turn a phrase. It's trying to take something that God has said is true and twist it or invert it or warp it. And my friend Jamie says, he goes, isn't it fascinating that the enemy starts by trying to question the very last conversation that Jesus had with his father. God publicly says, you're my son, and the very first question from the enemy is, are you really? He goes, if, if you are the son. Not because you're the son, he goes, if, if you are the son. If you're the son, turn stones to bread. If you're the son, throw yourself down. And at every moment Jesus is tempted, he has to remember and reconsider, do I believe what God has said to me is true? And at every turn, Jesus' answer is, yes, I know who I am, and I know whose I am. The voice from heaven only happened once, and Jesus doesn't hear it for the full 40 days that he's in the wilderness. But sometimes God gives us enough truth in one day to last us for an entire season. And God uses this time of testing to anchor Jesus' identity through an experience. So I'm I'm reading a book called The Marshmallow Test. The subtitle is The Science of Self-Control, which is an important book to read if you work at an ice cream factory. And, And in it, the researchers point back to a time in the 1960s when researchers from Stanford took a group of preschool children and one at a time, they brought them into a room and they said, you can have one marshmallow now or you can have two marshmallows if you wait for a little bit. And they put a bell on the desk 
and the researcher would leave the room and if a child got out of their chair, rang the bell, or ate any of the marshmallows, they were disqualified from the prize. The researchers are watching them and filming them through one-way glass and they said some of the footage that they captured was absolutely astounding. They have kids who are closing their eyes, kids who are smelling the marshmallows but not touching them. Um, They said sometimes they use different treats. In one episode, they put um, Oreo cookies on the table. They said one kid opened up the Oreo cookie, licked out the frosting and put it back together. (laughs) And then he went to the other two Oreo cookies and did the same thing. And they said, they, they just had this, this, and then they tracked these children over decades to see what impact would it have on their lives. And they, they did some research in the Caribbean and they, they found that there were two different cultural groups that lived in the same area. And they said, I wonder if the cultural values and the upbringing that children have had will affect the way that they respond to this test. And so they tested both cultural groups and found that by and large, kids responded the same. So they said, let's do this. Let's test for one more variable. Let's test for what their relationships with their parents will do to how they respond. And they said, let's take one group of children that have a trusting relationship with an adult male like a father in their life, and let's take a control group that doesn't have that relationship and see what the results are. Can you guess what happened? Children who had a reliable adult male in their life showed statistically better capacity to resist temptation than children who did not. And their theory was this. They said children were able to put delay gratification when they believed there was a father in their life who kept his promises. Because they said, if you're a kid and you've been born into poverty or you've got a lack of resources and you don't have adults that you can trust and somebody offers you one marshmallow now and a couple marshmallows later, what are you gonna do? You're gonna jump on the sure thing because you have no idea if those two marshmallows are gonna materialize later. You don't know these people, they don't know you. You're gonna take what you can get when you can get it, right? So they found that children who trusted that an adult would make good on their word were able to say no to things that they didn't want now so they could get the things that they really wanted later. Why is Jesus able to resist temptation day after day after day? Because his identity as a son is so firmly anchored in his being that he knows that his father is gonna make good. Yes, he's hungry now. Yes, he's weak now. Yes, all of these things look attractive now, but if he can wait, he can know that his father will come through from him in ways that he might not even be able to imagine. And through that period of his testing, Jesus' identity is anchored. It's like it was like wet concrete at the baptism that solidified over his time of testing in the wilderness. So God announces your identity, and then through seasons of testing and trial and temptation, through opportunities to endure and persevere, God anchors your identity. And once your identity is firmly anchored in who you are, then God activates it into identifiable motion in your life. See, identity isn't just some warm, fuzzy thing that we hang on to so that we can have happy thoughts about ourselves. Identity actually drives our choices and our daily activity. So when Jesus comes out of the desert and returns to Galilee, what does he start doing? He starts doing ministry stuff. He starts doing the active work of the kingdom of God. He starts preaching the word, and he does it with the authority of a son and with the confidence of God's blessing. He prepares people to know God. He invites them to know the Father and experience the joy of hearing his voice. 
He displays power over darkness. He declares freedom to people who have been trapped in their own brokenness. All of these are the marks of his ministry. And Jesus tells his followers, he goes, all I'm doing are the things that I've seen my father do. And throughout eternity, he's seen God speak truth, he's seen God call his people home, and he's seen God declare light in dark places. Rather than wringing his hands and questioning what is the will of God today, he says, what would a son of God do in this situation and does it? So in the early stages of kind of COVID and quarantine and kids being at home, one of the constant refrains Kelly and I had to deal with from our kids was, I'm bored. And I'm like, that's your fault, fix it. You know, like, I remember, I was like, I, I, this is where I was, where I'm a grumpy old man. I'm like, back in my day, we didn't have iPads and Xbox and Fortnite. We made our own fun and we liked it, you know? To be able to say, well, go, go play in dirt. Like, go uh, pick up a ball and run sprints. Find something that you want to be good at. Go read a book. There's, there's no reason for you to be stuck doing nothing. And I think that some of us, when we're not sure about our identity, we're like, well, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna roll back on my heels, I'm gonna sit with my hands patiently folded on my lap, and I'm gonna wait for God to give me a to-do list, and when he does, I'll get to work. How often does God do that for us? Like, I've been following Jesus for a long time, I don't get emails from the Lord telling me what my blow-by-blow for the day is. What I do get from God is, this is what it means to function like a son of God, and this is what kingdom work looks like uh, in the scriptures. And so God is telling to every single one of us, you have the opportunity to live out your identity wherever you are. In part, destiny is following Jesus today because Bria embraced her identity as a daughter of God in her place of work every day. Her work wasn't, she didn't have her work life and her faith life, both of those were fully integrated. And every day she went to work, she goes, I can only imagine that she's asking this question. God, who do you want me to encourage today? Who do you want me to be spiritually um, kind of curious about today? Who do you want me to invest in today? Because that's, that's what a daughter of God does. That's what a son of God does. Our, our kingdom work flows out of our understanding of who God says that we are. Ministry is merely the overflow of who you are in Christ wherever you happen to be at the time. So ministry is not, is not bound by places or people or structures. And if there's one gift that God has given us through this pandemic, is a reminder that while the, the church building is great, it is not necessary for us to do the things that God has called us to do. A couple months ago, I had a friend kind of visit me, visit me at work where I'm working at a manufacturing plant. We, we make ice cream and this buddy had, was visiting another friend and he had heard about this kind of change in my life and knew that I had kind of stepped in the marketplace after 25 years of doing, working for churches. And he asked me this question. He's like, Steve, what's it like to not be doing ministry anymore? And I paused for a moment and I go, Dave, I get to do ministry every single day. Like, just because my, my paycheck doesn't say church on it doesn't mean that I don't have the privilege of being a part of the work of God every single day. And, my, and every single time you have an opportunity to do a task that brings glory to God, every single time you have an opportunity to encourage somebody who's facing a challenge in their personal life, every single time you have an opportunity to, to broker a, a relationship where there's division or where there's gossip or where there's heartache, what are you doing? You're doing the work of God. You're doing, you're doing ministry, however else it is that you choose to define it. When we know our identity and when we are activated in that identity, we cannot help but do the kinds of things that God would do if he was in our spot at the time that we're there. 
Identity is not how you think about yourself. Identity is made manifest in the choices that you make on a daily basis. As a worker, as a parent, as a student, as a friend. God loves you so much. He wants to announce your identity. He wants to anchor your identity. He wants to activate your identity. And yes, he wants to affirm your identity. Because have you ever noticed that sometimes when you've been following Jesus for a long time, you forget some of the stuff that you learned and you need to be reminded of it again? This is what we find in Jesus' life. Jesus has been living out who he knows he is week after week, month after month, year after year, right up until the very point of his death. And at that moment, at that very critical moment in his life, he needs to have his identity be affirmed. He needs to God to tell him again what he already knows to be true. This is what we read in Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. When you read the scripture stories, you know that when Peter gets excited, he just starts making stuff up. What is, what is Peter's backstory? Like, what is Peter's craft? What's he good at? Peter's a fisherman. Does he have any business volunteering to be a general contractor for the Messiah and Moses and Elijah? No, but he gets excited and that's, that's how Peter rolls sometimes. God is gracious. He, he, he interrupts Peter while he was still speaking. A bright cloud covered them. That'll get your attention. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. Peter, simmer down. Something else is going on here. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Is this word for word exactly what the father told Jesus at his baptism? Yeah, it is. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So Peter and his friends climb a tall mountain. Jesus is miraculously transformed before them. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Moses and Elijah appear. And the question is like, why, why do they need to show up? And the truth is that when Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount, he told everybody, he goes, don't think that I have come to reverse any of the amazing teachers that have come before me. I've come to fulfill them. He goes, I didn't come to erase the law and the prophets. I came to make them good. And in Jewish history, if you put a face to the law, it would have been Moses. And if you put a face to the prophets, it would have been Elijah. Here's what else they have in common. Both Moses and Elijah had 40 days in the wilderness alone with God where their identities and their calls were made specific and anchored in their identity. And then the question that we gotta ask is this, is what, what in the world are they talking about? I'm not exactly sure, but I have a theory. But before that, I wanna give you a little Bible backstory. When I went to Israel, we were standing in Jerusalem, and our tour guide said, if you look to the east, past the Mount of Olives, you'll at, you can actually see way far in the distance the mountains of Moab. And if you know the Moses story, you'll know that it, in part of Moses' journey, he disobeyed God, and God said, Moses, the consequence in your lifetime for this choice is that you will no longer be able to go into the promised land. I'll let you see it from the top of a mountain across the Jordan River, but you'll never get a chance to step foot inside. So our guide asked us, he's like, 
is that what happened? And I was like, yeah. Moses never got a chance to step in the promised land. And then he said, are you sure? I was like, I'm pretty sure. And they goes, what about Matthew 17 and the transfiguration? Where Moses is physically standing in the promised land on a mountain with Jesus. He goes, have you ever stopped to consider that sometimes there are consequences that last for a whole lifetime that end up getting redeemed on the other side of death because of God's power and his grace and his love? That the resurrection of Jesus Christ redeems all things. And there are some promises that might not be filled on this side of death. It doesn't mean that God won't make good good on them later. So Moses and Elijah are chatting, and my guess is that they're not chatting about Bible trivia because Jesus doesn't need any more answers. He knows them all. We learned about that when he was 12. What is the only gift, what is the only gift that Moses and Elijah can give Jesus who is a human, fully human, in addition to being fully God for the very first time? The only gift that they can give him is to teach him how to suffer as a result of his obedience. Moses preached faithfully to the people of Israel. In the desert, they were whiny, they were complaining, they were resisting. They rejected him time after time after time. And we we can't say for certain, but is it possible that Moses was trying to tell Jesus, hey, you're gonna be rejected by the people? It doesn't mean that you're not God's son. Stay the course. And what what did Elijah taste that Jesus was about to taste? Elijah knew what it was to face running for your life persecution. Elijah knew what it was like for his religious and political enemies to be trying to kill him. And maybe Elijah was trying to, trying to remind Jesus that, hey, even though you're facing hardship, doesn't mean that you're not the beloved son. Doesn't mean that God isn't pleased with you. Keep walking, keep fighting, keep preaching. Stay true to the very end. At the beginning of Jesus' story, he hears that he's the son and then he's tempted by the evil one. Jesus here on top of the mountain hears that he's the son, but on the Mount of Olives, what's gonna happen? He's gonna be tempted by the evil one again. This cycle is replaying itself in Jesus' life, but as he moves through his life, the stakes are getting infinitely higher. And God is saying, I want you to remember who you are and who you belong to. When you don't hear my voice, God said to Jesus, and he says to us, I want you to remember that you're loved. When you are hurting, I want you to remember that I'm pleased with you. You have to understand that not every trial is a punishment. Not every challenge is an expression of God's discipline. When you are tempted to run, remember who you are. And even in the face of death itself, be it physical, financial, relational, or vocational, you are my child, and I am your perfect and gracious father. When the pressure is on, you learn what you believe. Like when everything is going great, when all of life is sunshine and rainbows and green meadows and flowers, it's, it's really easy to say that you embrace all of the things that you believe to be true. But when the skies are dark and it feels like the bottom has fallen out and the walls are closing in and the roof is dropping, it, that, that's the moment of decision where you say, do I still believe this to be true? On Tuesday, a horrific explosion ripped through Beirut, Lebanon. And in the news, I saw a video clip where in moments before the blast, a 29-year-old Isra Sablani is posing for her wedding photos. 
And her videographer, Mahmoud Nakib, is filming her in her stunning gown and perfect makeup when the shockwave comes from behind them and almost blows them entirely off their feet. Now, by the grace of God, both the bride and the groom and the wedding party and the videographer all survived that tragedy. But what was stunning to me is what I didn't hear on that video. There wasn't any screaming. There were no cries of terror. There was no expression of panic. What you could hear Mahmoud saying as he continued to film the incident was this, God is greater. God is greater. Something in his worldview, and I don't... I don't know if he's a follower of Jesus or not, but something in his worldview is telling him that even as death is physically blasting towards me, I'm setting my feet firmly in the promise that God is above all things. And even if I were to lose my life in this moment, my, my eternity is in the hands of God and I will trust him. And when you are a beloved son or a treasured daughter of the Most High King, no matter what life barrels towards you, you can say, my confidence is in Jesus. And it doesn't mean that all of life will be easy or fun or comfortable or what I necessarily would have chosen, but it means that God is at work in it. And if even through my suffering, God transforms me or molds me or matures me and brings glory to himself and uses my life story to pull other people into his story, then I will say yes, yes, a thousand times yes because I know who I am and I know to whom I belong. In my own time with God, I've been reading through the book of 1 Corinthians and that was a church that was going through some really confusing times, just like we are today. And Paul said to them, he goes, hey, I want you to know that all things are yours in Christ. And you belong to Christ, and Christ is of God. So he goes, here's God, Christ is also God and his son. You are in Christ, everything that belongs to Jesus by the transitive property of math also belongs to you. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 31, Jesus tells a parable of a father whose older son is resenting the fact that a younger son who damaged the family's reputation and wasted a ton of money that they'll never get back and hurt his long-term financial prospects, when he came home, his father throws him a party rather than throwing him out. The older brother is frustrated and the father says to him these words. He goes, my son. He goes, I am always with you and everything I have is yours. Actually, he says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. It's really interesting. He's saying, son, I'm not going anywhere. And as long as you want to walk with me, you can. And if you trust our relationship, then you're going to live your life with an abundance mentality rather than a scarcity mentality because everything that I have belongs to you. You don't have to wait for me to pass away. You don't have to wait for life circumstances to change, to cash in. He's like, we, we share it all while we're living. Many of us are tempted in moments of fear or pressure or panic to think that God is withholding something good from us. And one of the most beautiful spiritual exercises that I've learned to employ over the last five years is to confess that. When I'm scared or unsettled or afraid, I'll confess, I'll say, God, right now, I don't believe that you care about me. Or I confess that I believe that you're holding out on me. Or I confess that you're not letting something that I believe good come to me come my way because of some arbitrary bad day that you're having. And in those moments, 
If I'm quiet and I listen, God is able to say, Steve, I love you and I'm with you and I'm for you. All I'm asking is for you to trust me. First Peter 2.9 says this, you are a chosen people, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, you are God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So let me ask you this question. How much of our days do we spend consciously declaring the praises of the one who has called us out of darkness into light? I'll go first, not much. Why? Because I get sideways on my identity. And I think that my identity is supposed to be fixer, savior, healer, champion, high status person in any one of these domains in my area, where it's work, where it's home, whether it's at play, whether it's here in church circles. And instead of just resting and saying, I am who God says that I am, that's enough, and I'll trust him, I I keep trying to kind of finagle or manipulate circumstances to either promote myself or protect myself. And like I said before, my friend Jamie says, there are two ways that you know that you've stepped out of your identity. When you're trying to self-promote or you're trying to self-protect. If you're acting out of pride or you're acting out of fear, it means that you've lost your perspective of yourself as son or daughter of God. And I think that what God is saying to us as a church in this very unique time in human history is, when you know that you belong to me, you can step into any circumstances with confidence and joy. Not fear and trepidation, but a sense of holy adventure believing that God is doing something in the world around us and that we have this great privilege of joining him. So the team's gonna come up and they're gonna sing a blessing over you. And it's my prayer that if any of you haven't yet heard God announce your identity, that maybe today you would hear that in a very sweet way for the first time. Or maybe you had a a baptism moment where you felt like God just spoke to you clearly and you had so much confidence and so much joy and so much peace and security but it's been two months or 20 years since then and you need to hear it again. Then my prayer for you is that you would have a a mountaintop moment where God would tell you something that you already know but tell it to you in a new and a fresh way. And maybe you've already heard it but you're not living that identity out. I'm just gonna pray that God would give you the, the sense of responsibility and the sense of energetic ownership to be able to say, I don't have to wait for God to tell me what to do in every single moment. Yes, I'm gonna listen for his wisdom. I'm gonna trust him for his discernment. But if God doesn't spell it out exactly, I, I know that I am empowered to fill in those gaps because I have the mind of Christ. And because I know who the Father is and what the Father does, I know what it looks like for me to join him in that moment. Let's pray together. Father God, you love us more than we are even humanly capable of understanding. And God, when we get lost on our sense of what our relationship with you is and can be, we can make reckless choices. We can can start, start hiding from you and hiding from others. We start to act out of pride or out of fear when you want us to act out of peace and out of joy. So God, remind us who you say we are and empower us to live out our identity. And if we're stuck and we need to pivot, then gently lead us into the moment of confession and repentance that allows us to start over. We pray these things in your name, amen.